If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter, picking up where we left off last week in the first verse of chapter 2. We've been in 1 Peter for five or six weeks now, going just through chapter 1, and this week we're only looking at the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. So I'll start in verse 1. It should be on the screen behind me if you don't have that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Taste buds are funny. From year to year, even sometimes day to day, they can change. We all know of things that we hated when we were kids, but now we kind of like them. We've grown to like them in our adulthood. I used to be just straight up not able to eat broccoli. I couldn't get it down. Just no. It didn't matter how much cheese you put on top of it. I was not going to eat that broccoli. But now, it's fine. As far as vegetables go, particularly green ones, broccoli's fine. I could eat broccoli and not really have a problem. But I still, to this day, throughout my entire life, I still hate cucumbers. I can't stand them. And the worst part about them is that whenever you put a cucumber in a dish, the whole thing now tastes like cucumbers. It's like you're eating a cucumber salad rather than the salad that just happened to have a few cucumbers in it. So that's an instance of my taste buds not changing, but staying the same. But we know that they still change, maybe even from day to day, because whenever we ask someone else what they want to eat, what do we ask? What sounds good to you? We don't ask, what food do you like? What do you like to eat versus what do you not like to eat? We ask, what sounds good today? Because last week it was pizza, but tonight it's fried chicken. The food is the same, the pizza or the fried chicken, But our tastes have changed based on the day. JC, our two-year-old daughter, her her, uh, tastes change change about every 10 minutes. (laughs) It's like you cannot keep up with what she wants to eat at any given time. She will beg and plead for a banana. And you say, do you want a banana? Yes. Are you sure you want a banana? Yes. And then the instant you peel the banana, when you are past the point of no return, she doesn't want it anymore. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, now nah, oranges, yogurt, anything else but this banana that is now useless because it's been exposed to the air. Her changes taste all the time. We'll stock up on strawberries, and then now she'll decide that she only likes oranges. And then next week, it's the opposite, whenever we're out of the strawberries. Taste buds are funny. And it feels, most of the time, like we don't have any control over our taste buds, over our tastes, our desires. We like what we like, and we don't like what we don't like. To desire something new requires a change of taste for us. But evidently, when you're born again, you get new tastes. You get new appetites, new desires. And that's what Peter is talking about in our verses today. So from our text today, we'll be able to see in these verses three indicators of a born-again appetite. We'll see three indicators of a born-again appetite in today's text. And the first indicator of a born-again appetite in our text today is that a born-again appetite has lost its taste for sin. Look back at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
Peter here in the first verse of chapter 2 is really continuing his line of thinking from what we've been talking about these last few weeks, that because of what God has done for his people in the gospel, therefore we should now act in certain ways as his elect exiles. Last week, we saw that we are supposed to have a truly Christian community in the church that's supposed to be marked by brotherly love toward each other. Today's section continues that same line of thinking and tells us how we might be able to create that community together as a church. And Peter tells us that in order to build a community on God's word, we each, every one of us as individuals, have to put away the sins which hinder that kind of community, which hinder us from being able to create that among us. So and therefore have roughly the same meaning here. So he's saying that because we are to love each other, therefore now so we have to put these things away. We don't just stop doing them, but we put them away. We put them where they belong. Especially in the winter where I'm wearing primarily jeans every day. I tend to re-wear them several times before I wash them. That might be a little bit gross to you, but I started doing that in college because I didn't have access to a washing machine, and I just haven't stopped yet. But when I take the jeans off, my thought process is, well, it's like 10 o'clock at night. In 10 hours or less, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, I'm going to put these same jeans on. So I take them off next to the bed, and I leave them right there next to the bed. They're just sitting there. But sometimes I get up the next day and I decide, you know what? I don't want to wear these jeans. I want to wear those pants. And whenever I go to bed that night, do you know what I do with those pants? I think, well, I'm just going to wear them again in like eight hours. So I might as well just leave them here. They're ready. So now I've got jeans and pants. And you can see where this is going. Eventually, I end up with a pile, a large amount of my clothing, not in the closet where it goes, but by my bed on its side, just sitting there. And let me tell you, my wife loves that. It's like her favorite thing about me. She's constantly asking me questions about my pile because she's such a huge fan. She says, how long is this going to be here? Because she doesn't want to miss a day of it. She wants to make sure she can see it the whole time. She says, why don't you just put all this away? Because she wants to know my reasoning. She loves the story of why I leave the pants there. So I just get to tell it to her over and over Sometimes she'll even decide that she's going to put them away just so she can see the pile build again the next day. In my thinking, I think, why put them away if I'm going to need them again? If I'm going to go back to those same pants again, why am I going to put them in the closet just so that every night they're there while I'm asleep? I don't want to put them away because I still have use for them. Peter's telling us to put these sins away. He's saying, take them off and put them where they belong, far away from a Christian community. He highlights these things particularly because I think these things have a knack for destroying the holy lives that we're supposed to be living together as God's people. He says to put away all malice, all of our ill will towards someone else. You see, evil, bad things, those things can be done on accident. We can do evil without meaning to do evil. But whether something is evil or bad, that's about objective result, whether it is evil or not. But malice, malice is about intent. As Christians, we're simply not supposed to root for people to fail, particularly not the other people in this room with us. 
We want what's best for everyone, individually, down to the one. And we also want what's best for all of us, corporately, cumulatively, for the entire whole. So deceit and hypocrisy have to also be put away. Malice is about how you think about the people around you, but these next two are about how you present yourself to the people around you. To be deceitful, that's to keep truth from them. You're not sharing with them what they might need in order to know how to live and function. Hypocrisy, that's just being deceitful specifically about yourself. It's you keeping the truth of yourself from someone. It's when what you present, what you say, isn't the same as who you are, as what you do. And in churches, I'm sure we hear about hypocrisy all the time. We see it in ourselves or the people around us. We're constantly accused by the world of being hypocrites. We read about it in the Gospels all the time. Jesus accusing the Pharisees and scribes of being hypocrites, just like in Matthew 23, verse 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Peter's telling us, just like our malice, we have to put our hypocrisy and deceit aside to put those things away too. But most of the time, whenever you hear someone talking about hypocrisy, it tends to end with a message telling you that you have to do better. That in order for you to stop being a hypocrite, you have to do better. You have to be better. If hypocrisy is when our words don't match our actions, because our words are up here and our actions are down here, usually at the end of that, someone says, therefore, make sure your actions are up here where your words are, so that they're on the same level, so that they match. And there's a kernel of truth to that. We should be consistent. We should be holy like God is holy, just like we saw earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. We should live like we're commanded to and how we tell each other to live in line with God's principles. But I think for the Christian, we have to recognize that we are never going to be able to do that. We're never going to nail it. If our solution is to do better, to be better, because our words say perfect holiness is the standard, our actions are never going to match up with that perfect holiness, which we are now saying is our standard. We're sinners. We are never going to uphold the perfection of the morality, the holiness that we try to communicate, that of God. So I think if we're going to avoid hypocrisy, if we're going to put it away, as Peter is telling us to, that means that we have to adjust our message. We have to adjust how we communicate what we believe. It means our message can't simply be, be like God. Our message can't simply be, follow Jesus. Our message can't simply be, I am trying to be holy as God is holy. That can't be it. We can't do that. We're never going to uphold that message. We're humans. We're sinful. It is impossible for us not to be hypocrites if that's our message. But Peter's telling us we have to put away hypocrisy. So then our message has to be something else. If we're going to avoid hypocrisy, our message can't be do better, be perfect. Our message has to be God is holy. Jesus is perfect and was perfect for us. And by faith now, though I am a sinner, I am counted righteous before him and in his eyes. If that's our message... If the gospel is our message, then we don't have to be hypocrites anymore. If that's our message because it's all about what God has done for us, 
our boneheaded actions, they don't make us hypocrites anymore. Now, when someone sees the sin in your life, the sin in my life, we don't have to defend ourselves to them as if, no, 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 I'm not actually that bad a person. Now, whenever someone sees sin, they point it out to me, and they say, hey, you are in sin in that instance. You are a sinner here. I can say, yeah, you bet. Don't you remember what I said? I told you already. I am a sinner. But Christ is a better Savior. I may fail to uphold his standard of holiness, but Jesus didn't. And now, without any works on my part, I am called holy by the only one who matters by grace through faith. You see, if our message is right, it's actually now impossible to be a hypocrite. So let's make the gospel our message. Let's put away our hypocrisy. But just because the right message helps you avoid hypocrisy, that doesn't give you a free pass to continue in all the same sins that you used to commit. You have to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and now also envy and slander. As you deal with each other in this Christian community, you have to hope for the best in everyone else. And then whenever the best happens for them, you can't be upset that it didn't happen for you. Because that's envy. And envy tends to lead to slander. You see, we don't like what they have. We want what they have. So we tear them down to make it seem like they don't actually have anything more than we do. Like whatever they have isn't actually something that would be worth us having. We slander them. We talk poorly about them. Peter's telling us to put away that kind of behavior in our Christian community. And James says when we do that, we're making ourselves the judge over them when we slander them. James 4.11 says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You see, there's only one judge. There's only one accuser of the brethren. And you shouldn't try to take the place of either one of them. A born-again appetite has lost its taste for these kind of sins. But a born-again appetite has gained a taste for the gospel. That's the second indicator of a born-again appetite. It has gained a taste for the gospel. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, those sins that you've lost your taste for, they don't satisfy you anymore. Now, what you're after is what Peter is calling here the pure spiritual milk. He's saying we should long for that which matures us. You see, the the milk a mother produces for her child, that is exactly what the kid needs. In fact, it's the only thing they need. They live on only that for the first six months. They can't even have water in that time. That's baby formula is trying to, to mimic what the mother is already trying to create. Water simply doesn't have enough nutrients for them. Water's just wasted space in their stomachs. They need milk, and they only need milk. So just as an infant needs milk to grow, to survive, we should be longing for that same substance for us spiritually. Peter doesn't spell out exactly what he's referring to here, but I think from the context, he's talking about the Word of God. 
That's the word through which we were born again, of the imperishable seed we saw back in 1 Peter 1.23. It lives and abides. It will continue forever, Peter says. So now I think he's continuing to talk about the benefits of the word of God, saying that that is the exact substance that you need to grow out of your infancy. What you're supposed to be longing for is what God has already given you, what he has already provided for you through the revelation of who he is and what he's done through his word of the gospel. So unlike in a few other places in scripture, Peter isn't telling them to move on from the milk to solid food. He's using a similar metaphor, same milk growing, but he's using it in a different way to emphasize that you need a nutritious substance in order for you to survive, in order for you to grow up in the faith. And he's telling us to long for that maturity. We're supposed to long for the pure spiritual milk in the same way as newborn infants long for theirs. For them, this isn't a cheap, this isn't a passing desire. It's not a slight inclination that they might be hungry or need something. This is hunger. What happens in my house most nights, whenever it's roughly dinner time, my wife uh, comes to me and she asks, hey, are you hungry? And I say, no, I'm not really hungry, but I could eat. Destiny will say, yeah, me too. And she'll say, well, what do you want? I'll say, well, I don't care. Nothing really sounds good. I'm not really that hungry, but I I could eat. So whatever you're going to make is fine. She says, well, yeah, nothing really sounds good to me either. And then we just sit there for like 30 minutes until someone either makes a decision or goes to McDonald's. We know we're supposed to eat and we kind of want to, but there's not any urgency there. I'm not hungry, but I could eat, I guess. But a baby? When a baby is hungry, it's not like when I'm hungry. When a baby is hungry, it is everyone's problem. There's no category for, I'm not hungry, but I guess I could eat, Dad. There's only totally fine, which means asleep, (laughs) or absolutely at the brink of death by starvation that you have to fix right this second, Dad, because I am your responsibility, and it's your fault that I haven't been fed yet. In fact, I'm going to keep screaming louder and louder until either you feed me or the neighbors call DHS. Those are your options. I'm hungry. Deal with it. The baby is longing for that which they need. That's how a newborn infant longs for his milk. And that's how we who are born again are to long for our spiritual milk of the word of God, of the presence of God, of the things of God. Like the psalmist does in Psalm 42 verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? See, his soul is thirsting. In the deepest part of who he is, he is thirsting way down deep in his bones for the living God. He's begging, when can I come into his presence? When can I hear from him? That's the longing we are supposed to have for the pure spiritual milk, which is the word of God for us. We're supposed to not only long for the substance, but also for the results of the substance. That by that milk, we may grow up into salvation. So we don't just long for that which is going to mature us. We long to be mature. We want God so desperately 
Because then we're going to have him. Then we'll be like him. Then we'll be in his presence. And as we grow and mature, as our new tastes for the word of God and his gospel are satisfied, that's when we grow up into salvation. We mature. We fill out. We lose the inability of our childhood. We lose the the awkwardness of our pubescence. We become the adults in the faith that we are supposed to be. But how Peter words that idea is he calls it growing up into salvation. It's not by that saying that we now earn our salvation as we grow, but that we become our salvation. That we look like the salvation that we've already received as we mature in the faith. We finally grow into the winter coat that mom said would eventually fit. Those who are born again have the kind of tastes that lead us to maturity. We simply can't settle for the junk food that won't satisfy us anymore. We refuse to waste the space in our stomachs with self-help or self-righteousness. We want the milk of the word of God and we want it desperately. We want to grow up so that we can look like the God who saved us. I've got to ask here, do we have these kinds of tastes? Does this indicator indicate us? Do you know what's good for you and not just pursue it, but actually desire it? When you show up on Sunday, are you here here to check a box? Or are you here because you are hungry for the word of God? When you get up in the morning, are you hungry to see more memes or to glorify God with your actions that day? Those who are born again, I think we have new desires. We have new tastes. We want different things now. Those who are born again have gained this kind of taste, a longing for the things of God, a longing for his gospel. But we also have an acquired taste that the Lord is good. That's the third indicator of a born-again appetite. We have an acquired taste that the Lord is good. Look at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you've experienced that the Lord is good. See, taste here isn't used in the sense of how we sometimes use it. Do you want to order your own fries? No, I just want a taste of yours. As if taste is a wildly varying degree of eating, a way to get some if you want it, but not enough for the whole meal. We get the flavor of it, we taste it, but we don't get the substance, the fulfillment of it. No, Peter's not using taste in that sense. Peter is using taste here to indicate a personal experience. That someone hasn't just told you the taste, but you know the taste. You've ingested the taste. And that which you have experienced here is the goodness of God. If you've tasted that the Lord is good. See, there's an important distinction here in what Peter is saying. This isn't all predicated on whether the Lord is good or not. It depends on whether you've tasted that he is good or not. So your tastes, your appetites here concerning whether you think the Lord is good or not, that's what actually determines your longing for his word or not. Those who have tasted that he is good, they now have an appetite for what he provides, that pure spiritual milk. Psalm 111 verse 2 says this, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. You see, when you see who he is, 
and what he has done. And you see how great all of that is. Because you delight in that, you now study his works. When you have experienced, when you've tasted his goodness, that goodness now is what you long for. That pure spiritual milk found in him. The biggest factor that usually determines my weight whenever I'm trying to gain or lose weight is the liquids that I drink. The, the people who say you shouldn't drink your calories have evidently never cracked open a nice cold can of Pepsi vanilla, which you can't even find around here anymore. But that's my kryptonite. So when I'm trying to lose weight, I have to go cold turkey, no soda, only water. But if you're someone who has made that change before, you'll recognize what happens after a while of drinking only water. Suddenly, that which used to be a bland nothing to you, that you used to have to force down because there was no flavor associated with it at all, now all of a sudden, you're like, that water doesn't taste so bad. Now all of a sudden, you go back to that Dr. Pepper that used to seem so sweet, and now it tastes too sweet. It doesn't satisfy you anymore. You find that your body is craving the water that it needs to live. You see, your appetites, your tastes, they've changed. When you come to recognize the natural goodness of the water that you used to despise, now you want that which is already good for you. Your body now recognizes the need for water it's always had. The soda doesn't satisfy you anymore. You've acquired a taste for what you should have already known, what you should have already experienced. I think that's what Peter's talking about here, that when you have tasted that the Lord is good, when you have acquired a taste for his goodness, when you are able to see him as good, that that is when you're going to continue longing for the pure spiritual milk, which he provides, which he gives. I think he's getting, that, getting at that fact that your ability to see God as good doesn't depend on how good God is. Because we know he's infinitely good. He is goodness itself. It doesn't depend on him and his goodness. It depends on whether you have the right taste for his goodness. It depends on whether your desires have been made new. That's why it's a born-again appetite. You're supposed to long for what matures you, but that longing comes as a result of what God has done for you. It comes as a result of the maturity and new life that you already have in him. Through him. That's why verse 3 begins with, if indeed. If it's true that you've been born again, if it's true that you've tasted the goodness of the Lord and been changed by that goodness, then yes, you're going to keep longing for that pure spiritual milk, which is going to grow you up into salvation. There are people you know, you can think of them probably off the top of your head, who simply don't have these kind of tastes. You talk about God and they're just bored. Maybe you talk about God and they scoff. I had lunch with an old friend not all that long ago, and at that lunch, he told me that he just didn't believe in God anymore. Not because he had reasoned philosophically or scientifically and gotten to a point where he said a creator actually is not necessary for the universe to exist. It wasn't a hit thing for him. No, he doesn't believe anymore because he doesn't see how God could be good. He doesn't feel like God could be good and the world be the way that it is. I mean, how can God be good and we see so much evil in the world? You see, he hadn't tasted that the Lord was good. He believed that he had tasted and seen that the Lord was bitter. 
But me, I've tasted of that same Lord. I've seen his goodness, his sweetness. The same God that he looks at and says, I do not believe he is good. I look at and see, I can only see that he is infinitely good. We're tasting, we're experiencing the same substance, but from that substance, you and I are able to attest that the Lord is good. Whereas this dear friend of mine now says the opposite. See, it's a problem of appetite. It's a problem of taste. And those who are born again, we get these new tastes. You've lost your taste for sin. You've gained your taste for the gospel through his word. And now you've acquired a taste for the goodness of the Lord. And if that's been your experience, then you can continue longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you might grow up into salvation. But I've got to ask this morning, if these indicators don't describe you, then I've got to ask whether you've been born again here, whether you're part of Peter's audience. When you look at the things that you desire, when you look at the things you want, do they sound more like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander to you? than the things of God? And you might even think here that you're in the clear if your answer to that is nope. I don't want any of those things. Absolutely not. I don't even think about possibly wanting those things. Never again. If your answer is that to that question, then I may actually be more concerned about you than if you would have said, yeah, I, I can think about all the times, all the ways that I have, still have those desires. I think I'm more worried if you say that those things absolutely never describe you at any point anymore. Because there's just no way that that's true. If you hear that list, malice, evil, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, envy. If you hear those things and say, nope, not me, never then I think you're probably just walking in sin so frequently that you are not even aware of it. A common idea in a lot of Puritan writings, if you go back and start reading them, is that they say the, the more holy you become, the more frequently you actually see your sin. Not necessarily that you are sinning more, you are actually probably being progressively sanctified and sinning less in your actual actions. But as the Spirit grows within you, you are more aware of the sin that was already there the whole time that you were completely ignoring because you didn't see it. So if you hear this list and say, nope, not me, never, I think you're just not aware of the sin that's already there. But if you see this list and say, yep, me all the time only, that's also not a good place to be in. If these things describe you only, then I think you're in trouble. But do these things only describe you, or is there also an appetite for the things of God? Is there also a longing to come into his presence? Do you also wake up on Sunday excited to come to church? Do you wake up in the morning excited to read your Bible, to study the works of the one in whom you delight? Do you want to read your Bible or pray to him? Do you want to read books about him? Do you want to talk about him with the people around you? Do you long for the pure spiritual milk of his word in the gospel? If your answer to both of those is yes, then I think you're actually in a pretty good spot. 
you can actually have a lot of assurance that you have enough of the Spirit within you to be able to see and recognize your sin, but also enough of a born-again appetite to not want it anymore, to flee from it when you see it. When you think of who God is and what he's done, is goodness, is sweetness what comes to your mind? In your experience, to, to your taste, is he good? When you think of him, do you think of him as the one who has loved you through your sin? Or do you see him as the one who is trying to punish you because of it? Do you see him as the cause of your sin? That you're somehow the victim here? Or do you think of the the suffering and pain that you've experienced in your life? Is he the one who has taken that evil and made something beautiful out of it? Or is he the one who sent it your way? to punish you because he's mean, because he's not good. You see, you're experiencing the same things. You're going through all the same things. But one has a perspective that God is good, unshakably, infallibly, absolutely good. And the other one says, no, 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 I'm not so sure. That which I have tasted, I do not see in him as being good. If you only see him as a judge as a harsh landlord, as a corrupt police officer, I don't think that sounds like the appetite of someone who's been born again. If the more you taste, the more you experience, the more you hear, the more you think, I don't like that guy. That's not a God that I want to worship. It's my prayer today that if you walked in this room without these kind of tastes, that you won't leave that way. That though you may have walked in without a born-again appetite, my prayer is that you'll leave with one. That you'll leave experiencing who he is. That you'll see his goodness. You'll know that you can lose your taste for sin today. You can gain a taste for the goodness of the Lord today. You can begin to experience that goodness today. If you will repent of your sins and believe that the perfect life of Jesus Christ given in your place is enough to save you from those sins. If you'll repent from your sins and believe in his gospel, then you can be redeemed. You can be born again, given a new heart right here and right now. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to talk to you more about these things after the service in a few minutes. But for the rest of you, those who hear this and think, oh, yes, man, I want to lose my taste for sin even more, but I know that I've lost it. Man, I want to long for the pure spiritual milk even more, but I know that I do. Man, I want to see, taste, and experience his goodness even more, but I know that I have. If that's you this morning, then I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. I hope that you can hear these indicators and see what God has done in your life. And I hope that you continue to long for the pure spiritual milk more and more with each passing day. I hope that these indicators indicate you. That's my prayer this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people to be fed by your pure spiritual milk. Thank you for this word, which is enough to satisfy us, enough to fill us, enough to show us who you are. 
And thank you that the more we taste, the more we experience, the better you are. Thank you for your goodness in addition to your justice, in addition to your greatness. Thank you for the chance to be able to see that in what you've revealed to us and for us. Thank you for the gift of your son, the gift of your gospel, that by it we might repent of our sin, believe in his perfect finished work in our place, and experience the resurrected life that he rose to give us. How for these indicators to indicate us? Make our sin bitter that Christ may be sweet. Give us the longings that we need as desperately as we need them. And show us your goodness so that we might study you, the one in whom we delight. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.